Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Benjamin Laidler with us, Tower Hudson right now. Uh, many of you know that he was with us 14 months ago and did better than good. I'm calling Equity Market. He was with us a few weeks ago, and we're thrilled he could rejoin us uh, today. Ben, you have a brilliant chart, and I want you to dovetail this into where we are now after a 1,000 points down yesterday of the great rotation of U.S. domestic and international flows. What does that chart tell you about your confidence in U.S. equities? Uh, it tells me that maybe people aren't as bulled up on U.S. equities as um – you know, I, I think the consensual narrative is, I mean, you've had something like $400 billion of uh, mutual fund outflows out of U.S. equities over the last couple of years. And at the same time, you've had um, an awful lot of money going into international equities. So I think this sort of narrative as we came into the year that, you know, the U.S. just couldn't keep outperforming yeah. and that you should really look at international equities um, uh, has actually sort of been turned on its head, right? I mean, yeah. the coronavirus was a sort of catalyst for this, but I think we've all woken up to the fact, or the consensus has woken up to the fact that this sort of international growth recovery uh, is maybe not as secure as it once looked. Um, and, um, you know, the valuations, I don't think, were, were, you know, a bit of a mirage. It's just, you know, you have different sector composition internationally. And I think the U.S. is, is actually a lot more secure than people think it is. I think um, the macro, were in pretty good shape. Valuations, I think, are... are more supported than people think they are. Yeah. And we've just had the yeah. end, end of the earnings recession. And, um, and, and you know, to back to the chart, I think the sentiment on U.S. equities actually hasn't been that good. John, this um, is... So put all that together. And, um, you know, I, I think the case for the U.S. remains here. This chart, John, is one of the great unknowns of the present zeitgeist. People don't understand the flows domestic international. So, Ben, let's extend this one step further or a couple of steps further. Do you think there's a technical flow dynamic, flow component to the resilience of your equity, equities over the last couple of weeks? And that wasn't just some complacency around fundamentals. Uh, yeah, I think there's been a little bit of that, right? I definitely think you've had, um, you know, you've had inflows into U.S. equities for the first for the last couple of weeks, which is the first time we've seen them in, you know, literally months. So, you know, it could be part of that sort of safe haven trade, but you're definitely seeing money coming back into U.S. equities uh, for the first time in, in a while. Um, and I think the other one is earnings, right? Let's talk about fundamentals. We had three quarters of negative earnings growth, and now in, in the fourth quarter, which is basically wrapping up, you know, as we speak, you've got you've got positive earnings and. and you know, I've argued before they're more positive than they look once you sort of strip out energy and we all know all the bad things that are happening there. And once you strip out international, which has been quite a big drag on U.S. So domestic U.S., I would actually say it was in pretty good shape. And I think it gets better from here. Well, Ben, let's talk about that, because Germany, recession, likely. Italy could be one, too. Japan is heading there. South Korea is going to be a terrible Q1, terrible Q1 as well for China, too. Can you really remain constructive with that kind of macro backdrop, Ben? Um, I think you can if it's, you know, if, if the coronavirus remains reasonably contained, right? And it, it remains a sort of one or two quarter event and we allows us to sort of look through it, if you like, to sort of the recovery and we, and we and we sort of continue on. So I think that's absolutely what's at stake here, right? I mean, what drove, you know, the sell-off at the end of last week and into this week was partly the coronavirus sort of going global and the sphere of the unknown and, and that it could, you know, dislocate economies for, you know, more than a quarter, but, um, you know, I also think there's some politics here, right? I mean, Sanders' resounding victory in the Nevada caucus, I think, is certainly unnerving 
uh, some people. And we have flash PMIs out of the U.S. at the end of last week, which showed a little bit of weakness in services, which I think is important because, you know, that's been the, the anchor of this sort of U.S. economic strength for the last uh, sort of a couple of years. So, and, and also, you know, the backdrop's really important here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm pretty bullish on U.S. equities, but we are on 19 times earnings, and we have just come off, you know, months and months of below average equity volatility. So I think, you know, to have markets pulling back a little bit and to have a bit of volatility, I, you know, I think we've, we've just got to expect it from time to time. Ben, I'm really glad that Tom started with flows and talked about how flows are flooding into the United States since it is sort of uh, the strongest economy of them all. I'm struggling to understand where they're coming out of, and I'm looking at emerging markets lower. Uh, if you look at the MSCI index by 5% year to date, a pain trade since a lot of people thought that this area would outperform. Do you think that consensus trade at the beginning of 2020 has been turned on its head and is poised to continue to underperform through the rest of the year? Yeah, I, I think we're in the middle of it, of it being turned on its head. I mean, I, say, I think it's really reasonably early days. We've seen a couple of weeks of U.S. inflows. But I think there's, um, you know, as I say, on a cumulative basis, over the last two years, you've had something mm-hmm. like $300 billion go into international equities. So, you know, I think there's, a, I think there's quite a long way to come. And, yeah. and I think, um, you know, the mistake that the markets are making is, um, you know, it, it, the international was really going to recover here. I mean, I think that was a little bit of a sort of head fake, right? I mean, uh, you know, Europe is going to have significantly lower growth than the U.S. this year. China's, you know, stabilizing you know, at best. Uh, I think the resiliency of that international growth was sort of always in question. And then the sort of mirage that valuations are cheap. I, I, I don't think they really are. I just think it's, you know, places like Europe are full of cheaper sectors and the U.S. is full of sort of intrinsically more profitable, right. um, you know, more expensive sectors. Ben Laidler, thank you so much. Tara Hudson, greatly appreciate it to see you in February uh, this year. Should we bring it in Shepherdson? He's emotional. He has to root for Newcastle. you got to be emotional. The Pantheon Macroeconomics Chief Economist. Ian, fantastic to have you with us. Mr. Clarida, the Vice Chair, speaking at 3 p.m. Eastern. What are you looking for from him later? Uh, I'm expecting to say that the Fed is watching very carefully the uh, developments on the coronavirus. That seems to be the mantra of the moment. Uh, I'm glad they're watching very carefully. I don't think they're going to do anything yet. But I tell you, if we have a few more days like yesterday, I think they probably would. Uh, As of right now, we seem to have a sort of a dead cat bounce emerging in in futures this morning in in the U.S. So we'll see what develops. But um, I think that the Fed is not at the point yet where they're going to pull the trigger to take sort of a, a precautionary uh, action. But um, yeah, it could happen. I mean, I think the thing we all got to admit here is is how much we don't know. I mean, you know, we just don't know uh, how far this thing's going to spread, how quickly it's going to spread, where it's going to spread to, the extent of the disruption it's going to cause. It's just a long list of don't knows. So I think for the Fed to be saying they're watching very carefully is probably about the most sensible thing at the moment. And then we will see the outcome over the next few days. You know, Ian, I agree with you. I've said multiple times over the last couple of weeks that we just need a massive dose of humility about what we don't know at the moment. We can get our hands around some of the risks, though. Twin shocks to demand and supply for the global economy. Yeah. I asked this question a little bit earlier, Ian. I'd be interested in your response too. What is the biggest shock that you're worried about at the moment, the demand side or supply side? Well, the, the, the two are inextricably linked. I mean, certainly if, if I were in manufacturing, I'd be most concerned about the disruptions to supply, uh, inability to get a hold of parts, materials, equipment, I mean, all of those things. Um, if I were in a consumer-facing business, I'd be worrying about people just staying home and not shopping at my store or not coming to my restaurant or my bar or, or not taking vacations in my hotel. So it depends where you sit. 
but the 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 effect ultimately could be quite severe. Uh, you know, we've we've seen this in in Italy right now with 50,000 people in lockdown. Um, you know, I imagine that the the tourist business in Tenerife and the Canary Islands is now feeling extremely nervous after their one case. Actually, it was a doctor visiting from Italy, which presumably is, is why he brought it with him. Um, so it it does depend which bit of the economy you sit in as to whether you're more concerned about demand and supply. From a sort of a, a macro perspective. I think the Fed's focus will be on the potential for demand shock because I think the extent of inflation, upside inflation risk coming from this is probably quite small. Um, remember, the, in the West anyway, most of our inflation index components are services. They're not goods. So if the price of manufactured stuff from China goes up, even if it goes up quite a lot, it's probably not going to make a huge difference to the inflation picture. I think the Fed would look through that. Uh, and if it turned out that demand were collapsing, I think they would step in and ease pretty much no matter what was happening to the inflation side from China. Ian, there's a bit of gallows humor about the Fed cutting rates in response to the coronavirus, the concept that that could somehow help the situation when it is so clearly a solution uh, that isn't addressing a medical need. I'm just wondering for stocks, I mean, how much will it actually do to cut rates if the Fed is waiting for actual evidence that there is an economic slowdown? By the time they do that, wouldn't there be enough of a pull downward for equities that a 25, 50 basis point rate cut won't make a difference? Uh, yes, I mean this is the dilemma that they face. Um, you know, do, do you respond to a market move? Do you wait for the economic data to move? Do, do you assume that a market move will drive a move in the economic data? I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence that it, that it would. Um, and uh, and then ultimately, if you do pull the trigger, what what good does it do? I mean, it sends a signal, of course. The signal that it sends is that the Fed has got the markets back, which is a, a view that's been extremely powerfully held in markets for a very long time now. Um, and so it's kind of you need to think of the of the alternative. You know, if they don't step in and move, then that could then generate panic in markets because it will be saying to investors for the first time in a very long time that hey, the Fed doesn't have your back. In which case, sell everything. Um, and that's not a position I think they want to get into. So having, having trained markets to believe that the Fed will always be there for them, now probably is not the time not to be there for them. So I kind of think that if the, if the markets take a further yeah. serious tumble, they'll pretty much have to move. But you're right. I mean, it doesn't address the underlying question of cutting rates doesn't fix the coronavirus. That's for sure. Ian Shepardson, you and Freya Beamish have been lights out on LinkedIn. You've just really put out some very important Asia research as well. Give us your update, what your expert on China says. What does Freya Beamer say about the immediate dynamics of China? Yeah, it's an awful mess. And the, the, the more we look at it, the more bearish we're getting about the first quarter and the more nervous we're getting about the prospect for a re quick rebound in the second quarter. You know, after all, the start of the second quarter now is only four weeks away. Uh, so th th this is now becoming a clear and present danger to China's economy for the whole of the first half of the year. Uh, and it, I think it's becoming more and more difficult to have a view in a V-shaped rebound. There's a lot of activity there that, uh, that will be recaptured, but an awful lot of it that won't, especially uh, in the services sector. And they must be worrying about permanent loss of business from, from firms outside China who will try and now do business with, with, uh, with alternative suppliers in, in other countries. Um, I'm pretty sure that China isn't going to print GDP numbers anything like as bad as we think they will actually be. But of course, you know, disbelief in China's statistics isn't anything 
uh, new, but but I'm I'm pretty convinced that, uh, that the economy is going to contract outright in the first quarter. And you know, at the moment, it's very much an open question as to how big the rebound is in the second quarter, or heaven forbid, mm. whether that rebound gets pushed out into the third. Which, yeah, you know, is is possible at this point. And I was looking at some of the estimates for PMIs just last week ahead of this China PMI extravaganza this coming weekend 45.1 for manufacturing is the estimate it's a moving target as we survey participants that can move around ahead of the print non-manufacturing 51.5 that's the median estimate going into the february print for non-manufacturing pmi ian how on earth do you generate any kind of estimate whatsoever as to what has happened in the chinese economy this month you don't. I mean, these numbers are guesswork. Nothing, nothing more and, and, and nothing less at, at this point. You know, the previous print for the manufacturing was 50 dead. Um, and it tends not to move by huge amounts. So for it to drop to 45, or the, the consensus in your survey, 45.1, don't forget the point one, to drop by, by five points is an enormous move. And to drop by three and a half points, which is a consensus for the non-manufacturing PMI, also is an enormous move. And that will be reflected pretty quickly in PMIs in Europe and, uh, and the US as well if it happens. But, you know, we just don't know. We, we, we really don't know. We do just have to, at this point, hold our hands up and say that when these numbers print, um, you know, no. we could be surprised in either direction. Absolutely. I, I just want to say, folks, go to LinkedIn, Pantheon Macroeconomics. It is lights out one of the best things on LinkedIn out there. And Johnny even recapitulates, recapitulates my viral log chart from the Johns Hopkins University. Yeah, shout out to Klaus Vistessen as well. Yeah. Who does the European coverage for them. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. firm. I mean, it's like some great best research. of class out on, I mean, it's hugely informative stuff. A viral log chart. Thank you. Viral it's log chart. It's about the virus. Log, log it's not a log chart It's about that's the cases viral. of China and the deaths, and the slope is flattening out of cases. That's good news. Although you have to wonder about the actual yes. accuracy of the data as well as the spread uh, to other regions. Ian, great to catch up with you. Thank you, Ian. Ian Shepherdson of Pantheon Macroeconomics. You know, somebody said earlier it was a dead cat bounce. We don't say that. We don't editorialize. But Lisa... That what we I, the word I would use is stasis here. The tape. Somebody they said you know, somebody upstairs in the food court said to me, you know, what's it look like? It feels just like stasis here, waiting for the next news. The unknowables kind of paralyzing people. But the one thing that is knowable is what will earnings do, and it is not going to be positive yeah. for them. And we're starting to get earnings revisions that are lower. And the avocado toast this morning was just exquisite in the food court. You have never just, had avocado was, toast. Just, have you ever had avocado toast ever? I, I, when I'm on the Upper West Side. I'm I'm forced to have avocado toast. I know that's, that's not right. true. I've seen you there, and I know that you're not eating avocado toast. Why don't you bring our steam, <laughs> our steam guest who's all stasis right now? Gina Martin-Adams, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist for us here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Brilliant research coming out. And I really want to you know, focus on the earnings. You put one report out, stocks and face, near-term struggle as earnings momentum runs out. What were you referring to? Yeah, so a, a lot of it is just fourth quarter earnings season, I do think, elevated stocks to a degree where they could sort of ignore the downward revision momentum to Q1 and Q2 related to coronavirus. Because Q4 came out so much better than expected, uh, you know, in the end, we ended up earning about 2% growth on, on the index um, EPS. That's much better than the expectation for nearly a 2% decline. So that helped us ignore coronavirus. Well, now that earnings is waning, the momentum in forward estimates is becoming more and more and more important. And what we're finding is 
not only are first quarter estimates falling, but second quarter estimates are falling and third quarter estimates are even starting to fall now. So analysts are sort of having to embed expectations for much slower growth, disruptions to supply chains, a lot of uncertainty into their forecasts. And I think that's going to weigh on markets for the near term. And we had MasterCard, United Air, uh, both emerging as the latest companies to warn that sales and profit are put at risk as a result of the disruptions due to the coronavirus. Just a mounting number of companies saying this. Do you think that this is going to be V-shaped, U-shaped, yeah. or do you think that this is going to be a more permanent hit for companies at a time of already slowing momentum? It really depends upon how long coronavirus lasts, right? It, the first quarter is typically very seasonally weak for most industries and anyway, especially technology. And technology is really central to the story because TMT as a whole is 35% of the market cap of the index now. So it's really important that the tech supply chain is able to operate and get back online by by the end of the first quarter because you start to see order flow ramp in the second quarter and into the third quarter especially. Third quarter is the most important season for tech. So I think you want to watch for how long it lasts. It can absolutely be a V if the factories come back online and demand starts recovering, if all of the quarantines end within the next week or so, you can definitely have a V-shaped recovery into the second half. But if it persists over a period of the next several weeks and even leaks especially, into the, th- the second quarter, that I think could be consequential and create more yeah. of a downdraft that stays really flat and then an upward trajectory, which is but much more like a U type of shape. It's all speculation. But then if I own something now, if I've been a grown up and I bought the uh, Gino Martin Adams ETF, whatever it is, I'm rationalizing out not quarters, but I'm rationalizing out one year or two yes. year or three year. With a new low interest rate environment, how far out do you and Bloomberg Intelligence yeah. rationalize? I mean, to me, three years is the new one year. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, especially with the Fed sort of constantly <clears throat> keeping rates as low as possible, real yeah. rates in very, very where's negative that, territory, where's that constantly value stepping now in. in our heads? I, you know, I think there's so much uncertainty with the end of this year with respect to the election and sort of where that takes us into 2021, it's almost impossible to take a three-year view. And this is part of the consequence of markets, unfortunately, is we've got coronavirus. And then once we move past coronavirus, we think again about election. Then once we move past election, depending upon who's elected, we think about potentially a new energy deal, a huge fiscal spending package, or trade wars again. So I think that the market is ongoing and adjusting to this ongoing period of a tremendous policy input in general, and that's creating a much shorter time horizon. There are fewer and fewer adults in the room, is my short, my short answer to the long question. Nobody thinks three years out. They think, okay, six months out, 12 months out, but thinking three years out has become nearly impossible because of all of mm-hmm. this policy volatility on the fiscal side yeah. more than on the monetary side. So Gina, you laid out all the uncertainties, and certainly that is the prevailing sentiment across markets today. What's your highest conviction certainty that's sort of anchoring your belief in U.S. equities right now? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is just the flight to quality certainty. When I talk about that policy uncertainty as the underlying condition that investors have to face, this I think it's one of the single biggest underappreciated drivers of the U.S. equity premium over the course of the last decade has been, in times of uncertainty, investors flock to the most certain. 
And the U.S. is the most certain in the globe of equities, right? It's the most consistent. The companies are most consistent. Um, they also are the biggest market share gainers. They produce the strongest earnings growth via margin expansion. And that consistency is very, very valued. It's one of the reasons I think the dollar continues to rally as well. It's a safe haven, right? And in a safe right. havens perform best in times of uncertainty. So the U.S., a lot of the reason the U.S. performs as well as it does is because mm -hmm. It is the certainty in an uncertain world. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. And to all your team as well, particularly Drew, awesome. Drew Redding was great today on Home Depot. Folks, we've been trying to speak to medical experts worldwide, particularly off London and uh, New York and at Baylor University. And as you know, that must mean Peter Hotez uh, joins us. He has been more than kind to join us with the Baylor College of Medicine, the National School of Tropical Medicine as well. Uh, uh, Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for your commitment to the show. Uh, the International Journal of Infectious Diseases, this is Rosano and all, out of Italy, and the thunderous article they wrote in November of 2019 is flu and flu death in elderly is a normal occurrence. How out of normal are we right now with this virus if it seems all the research shows flu is with us at each and every moment, and particularly for those over 65? So, first of all, thanks for having me back, and I think you've hit it, right? I'm, in fact, I'm here this morning at the Cleveland Clinic, and I was speaking exactly about that. I mean, if, if this coronavirus hits the United States, we've had a terrible flu season this year. Some projections are it's going to go to May, and unfortunately, Americans are not getting their flu vaccine. And then we have the added problem that uh, historically, when we had measles epidemics, they occur late winter, early spring guess which time of year it is. We're moving into late winter, early spring. And the consequence of both is, is, is due to the anti-vaccine movement, uh, which has greatly lowered our flu vaccination rates or measles vaccination rates. So I'm very concerned in this country, as in Italy, that we could be fighting right. a, a triple epidemic, and that's a no-win proposition. Discuss your professional view of the media and the normal public, I'm going to use this word carefully, folks, hysteria that we've seen over, say, the last three days about it's a crisis, we can do nothing, we cannot travel, we cannot move, et cetera, et cetera. Is there efficacy to this outrage and limitation of our moving around? Or should we try to make it life as normal even as we fight this horrific virus? Yeah, I think in any time you see a, a brand new pathogen, a new virus, people get very worried very quickly. It's always the fear of the unknown. And, and again, the example of that is uh, there's nothing uh, that's much more deadly than flu or measles, and yet Americans are choosing not to vaccinate their, their families. And so that's one of the first thing I say. Let's at least take those two diseases uh, off the table. Uh, look, I mean, this, it, it is a concern, right? I mean, northern Italy is being severely affected uh, by this, as is other pockets. Right now, you know, the World Health Organization is not calling this a pandemic. We may eventually get there, but uh, for now, it's still confined to focal areas. Uh, so we just have to be smart about it and, and take the key steps uh, to anticipate what happens if it does come to a place like the United States. And, and the most, one of the most important things that I'm worried about is protecting our health care workers. Uh, we saw in Wuhan over a thousand 
healthcare workers got infected with this virus with six deaths. So we, those are the ones that we're going to have to protect, those on the front lines, making certain that we have uh, adequate diagnostic <clears throat> testing. Right now the test that we have is not n- nearly good enough to routinely uh, pick up this virus. So it, the, the key now is to be very smart and very strategic about what to do uh, when this virus occurs and where it might occur next. So, Dr. Hotez, just from your perspective from the medical community, what do we know about the coronavirus and what don't we know about it? Uh, what, we, what we know is that uh, for many individuals, it does not produce a severe infection, especially younger individuals. So we know at least 80% and probably more than that are low-grade upper respiratory symptoms are resembling the common colds, but we do know that individuals who are older of underlying diabetes or hypertension uh, are at greater risk for hospitalization and death. I mean, so one of the things we don't know is what's the story in that link between diabetes and hypertension? We don't know, and that's not only true of this virus, but other viral uh, infections as well. So that's a big unknown. We still don't really understand how this virus is transmitted. We know close respiratory contact is certainly a major route if you cough or sneeze on somebody or if those droplets get on surfaces, you come into contact with them. But we don't know, for instance, for sure whether this virus can mm-hmm. travel for, for meters out in the air like measles does. Not too many viruses, it, it turns out, uh, does that. Also, we're seeing uh, strange presentations, meaning that uh, the Chinese have recorded several patients now who were actually admitted for abdominal symptoms and thought to have a surgical problem, and only later did it turn out they had the coronavirus, and that caused thousands of people in the hospital to get infected. So, you know, uh, the the bad news is we're still on a steep learning curve about this virus. The good news is it's only been a few weeks. I mean, I have to say, you know, compared to what happened with previous epidemics like SARS, where it took us months and months to isolate the virus and know what this virus was, We've compressed that now to a period of days and weeks. So, so we're learning a, a lot. And in some ways, the, the Chinese did us a favor by giving us that few-week head start so we can get ready for it uh, here in this country. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much. From the Cleveland Clinic today, Cleveland, Ohio, Peter Hotez, of course, of Baylor at University. We can have Quant Corner with Kevin Cirilli. He's in South Carolina parsing uh, poll numbers. Kevin, what parts of South Carolina support uh, Senator Sanders? Well, look, I think that he's going to try to put together the Hispanic coalition and replicate what he did in Nevada, but then also the more rural voters. I think the question is going to be how strong and significant is African-American turnout in the cities uh, for former Vice President Joe Biden. I mean, the expectation is not that Bernie Sanders is going to win this thing on, in South Carolina. The expectation is that Joe Biden is going to win big. I mean, and, and so you look at that and then you head into Super Tuesday. If Biden doesn't at least meet his own clearing mark, then it's going to be very difficult for him to make the case that he should stay in this past Super Tuesday. So, Kevin, what? who is, I guess for the folks that are going to be on stage tonight, who has who is this debate most critical for make or break? I'd say Joe Biden. I'd say Joe Biden just because I think if, if he doesn't perform strongly in South Carolina, you know, and then has a, a harmful Super Tuesday, there's going to be a lot of questions. But really all of them uh, in, in the sense everyone but Bernie Sanders, because if you look at polls, 
uh, whether it's Texas, whether it's California, I mean, he's leading. So if all of the candidates attack Bernie Sanders, then, you know, whether it shifts the dynamic of the race, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but up until this point, it just it hasn't stopped. So if you're any of the other candidates yeah. and you're hoping that there's going to be a contested convention or some type of delegate fight, then you need to keep Bernie Sanders as far away from getting right. 1991 delegates as possible. You need to keep him from clearing. I one could make the case 13 to 1400, you know, because you need there to be. Uh, it needs to be close. If if he ends up getting like 1500 delegates, how do you stop that? And I'm just not sure yeah. that 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 they would be able to do that. Kevin, good luck tonight. We'll look forward to that coverage on Bloomberg Radio in Boston, in Washington, in New York. Our complete coverage of the debates. Kevin Cirilli clearly leading our coverage in South Carolina, our chief Washington correspondent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.